This episode is brought to you by EarthBreeze, the one New Year's resolution I've ever been able to stick to. It's completely transformed my laundry experience. Gone are the big, heavy plastic jugs, the measuring out of detergent every time. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze wash sheet. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze eco sheet. It looks just like a dryer sheet, except it's slightly less dry. It's ultra concentrated detergent. I throw it in the wash and that's it. Never think about it again. Laundry comes out great, clean, fresh smelling, no harmful chemicals or bleaches or dyes or anything in there. If you want to change up your laundry game this year, right now my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled, that's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. One of the great competitive advantages of the oil industry is in its gifts for regulatory capture. And I think that we are seeing that in the current context. We certainly are. That was Carol Muffett, president and CEO of the Center for International Environmental Law. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled. We last heard from Muffet in our Mad Men season, talking about John Hill. He's the guy who told us about oil companies creating filters for cigarettes, which blew my mind. Today, the Center for International Environmental Law releases a report entitled Pandemic Amid Systemic Decline, Why Exploiting the COVID-19 Crisis Will Not Save the Oil, Gas, and Plastics Industries. So I wanted to have Muffet on to talk through some of the key findings in that report. There are two other reports out this week as well that are all kind of related to this COVID climate intersection. An analysis from Friends of the Earth that shows how oil and gas companies might get a lot of their debt wiped out by a new Federal Reserve program. And Influence Map has one looking at anti-environmental lobbying that's happening during the pandemic. All stuff we've also been covering in our Climate COVID Policy Tracker. Check that out online if you haven't already. As we've reported on before, the fossil fuel industry was in trouble long before the coronavirus pandemic hit. What we didn't know was that petrochemicals and plastics were in trouble too. And that's where we're gonna pick up with Muffet after this quick message from today's sponsor. New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less and we all know it's not gonna happen. (laughs) But one thing I have been able to stick to, and you can too, is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing Earth Breeze. I know you're thinking laundry is not so fun. Those huge heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. EarthBreeze Eco Sheets totally changed the game. Unlike powder or liquid, EarthBreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent. And it's super easy. You just 
throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring. There's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean. It smells great. I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, free of bleach and dyes. So it's perfect for every load. You'll never run out of detergent again, thanks to Earth Breeze's easy, flexible subscription. You can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties, and you save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Plus, shipping is always free, and EcoSheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. It also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life, and the company has donated over 100 million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%. 40 for zero. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. these three interconnected sectors, oil, gas, and, and petrochemicals, particularly plastics. And what we were finding is that across all three sectors, there were incredible pressure points that indicated that the, the growth stories the industry is trying to tell, basically they're not holding up to any sort of serious scrutiny. Like I mentioned earlier, I had heard this about shale gas and crude oil. The shale gas market is imploding and the demand for crude has been on the decline in the past few years. But I hadn't heard it about plastics. In fact, that's where the big oil companies have been investing their money and where they've been projecting soaring demand and profits. I'm curious about the petrochemical and plastic side of things, um, because I think, you know, we're starting to hear more about the shale gas stuff. Everyone's kind of been suspicious of fracking for a while. But I know that, you know, the investments into plastics have been sort of how the industry has planned to deal with decreased fossil fuel demand. So what have you been seeing there that kind of disproves that whole strategy? Well, I think what we're seeing is just how much the industry is relying on plastics 
to save it going forward. We highlight this in the report. You know, the industry has, on the one hand, been working on an array of regulatory rollbacks, you know, working to close down public opposition and public participation in decisions affecting a lot of its operations. But on the plastic side, it's gone still further and is actually seeking to exploit the current crisis to say that the world needs to be using more, not less, plastics. And it's doing this at a time where, again, even before the crisis began, you had major producers of plastics residents acknowledging that the industry's $200 billion investment in infrastructure had been overly optimistic, that that capacity was being overbuilt, that that prices for plastic resins and demand for plastic goods were not growing at anywhere near what the industry had been assuming it would. Mm. And so what we're seeing in the face of COVID is the industry trying to exploit this crisis in two very distinct ways. First is to secure additional government investments and additional regulatory rollbacks to make these projects move forward. And the second is to argue not only against bans on single-use disposable plastics that many countries were moving forward with, but also to argue that the world should be wrapping ever more items in plastic packaging in the name of hygiene and and public safety. And there's a remarkable instance of this where you have an industry representative actually fantasizing, and I'm using this word very advisedly, fantasizing that they'll be able to get the public to wrap bananas and apples in plastic packaging in the name of hygiene and fighting the COVID pandemic. And I think that that is a testament to, you know, how overly optimistic the industry is about about how it's going to be able to exploit COVID-19 to fill that gap in plastic demand that's being created by declining interest in and acceptance of single-use disposable plastics. Do you think that um, even before this pandemic that they are also just sort of convinced in their abilities to create demand where there is none? I think that is certainly the case. And I think it is the case for the very simple reason that for decades, that strategy has worked. That strategy has been effective for decades. This is an industry that has been very good at creating consumer demand, creating markets where they didn't exist before for products that people weren't looking for and didn't necessarily need. And so it's, you know, it may come across as overconfidence, but it's overconfidence that's been built on decades of of an industry effectively exploiting its understandings of consumer behavior. I think where they failed is in, in failing to recognize that people's willingness to accept plastics ultimately has limits as people began to understand that the impacts of plastics are going beyond our oceans, going beyond wildlife, that plastics are affecting human health, that they're affecting human communities, that they're affecting human rights, and ultimately they're affecting climate. More and more people are recognizing that this is an unnecessary product line that we can no longer afford. Do you think that there's been sort of a weird disconnect in the climate space between kind of not seeing that plastic is connected to climate change and then 
sort of the second part of that question is, you know, if you do think that, I know, I feel like I've seen that. Do you think that that has somehow been intentional on the the part of industry? Yes, in both respects. And the reasons why are closely related. What we had seen is for a really long time, people who were concerned about plastics and people who were concerned about climate paid very little attention to each other. And each community you know, believe that they were fighting a very different, very distinct fight. Yeah, it's only been in in the last year to two years that that that's really begun to change. You know, with research from CL and other organizations beginning to expose those linkages, but it has changed really rapidly. And I think we saw that reflected, you know, not only in the growth of of campaigns leaking. The, the two issues and media coverage linking the two issues, but the widespread attention to plastics at the most recent climate negotiations where they'd never made any meaningful appearance in the past. Plastics were all over UNFCCC climate talks last year. And this lack of awareness, you know, the reason for it is clear. The oil and gas producers who are the primary producers of petrochemicals and plastics have been very good at making themselves invisible in all of this. The reason that plastics were invisible as a climate issue is that plastics themselves have been largely invisible in in most of our national discourse. They were only entering our public policy discourse, either in the context of toxics, because plastic packaging was carrying toxics into people's homes and in their bodies, or it was entering the public discourse as plastic waste. In neither of those places have the oil and gas producers that are major plastic producers been out front saying, hey, we're all about plastics. But when you look at their websites, when you look at their communications to other business, they're very clear that they are all about plastics. And so this is an industry that's been very effective at, on the one hand, promoting the use of plastic resins across ever wider ranges of of product streams and in ever you know, ever more countries around the world. And on the other hand, keeping their own role in these processes largely invisible from the public. You know, the public, when they think about who produces plastic, they think about Procter & Gamble, they think about Starbucks, they think about Amazon. All of those are completely legitimate. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, the molecules going into that plastic are all coming from a handful of companies, and they have names like Exxon and Chevron and Shell. What are your thoughts on sort of even if the industry succeeds in pushing a momentary spike in demand for plastic now, that that is something that will continue post-pandemic? Is there any concern that behavior change that took a long while to get, like people bringing their bags to the grocery store, could be stalled out by what's happening now? That's certainly their goal. You know, they're, yeah. they're, the industry's goal is clearly to reverse a behavioral shift that was starting to really take root and grow. The challenge they face and the reason they're likely to fail is that the opposition to this industry is coming not only from consumers, but increasingly from the communities who are on the front lines of the build-out of plastics, who are working to right. stop these plants from being built in their communities, and increasingly from investors who are increasingly skeptical about about the prospects of sinking money into this industry. Clearly, the industry's goal is to seize this opportunity to, to trigger a short-term increase in packaging that takes advantage of fear. The problem that they face is that fear 
is momentary. The recognition that our, our current practices are unsustainable is, is much longer term and I think very difficult to roll back. In some ways, this report from the Center for International Environmental Law gave me a little bit of optimism because what I've been seeing is that it kind of doesn't matter that the economics don't pencil out for oil. If the industry continues to hold the government hostage and maintain its social license, it will just continue to get bailed out. But Muffet says what he and his team see in their research is that the end of the fossil fuel industry is inevitable. That bailing them out now is like throwing money in a hole. And after a while, people will stop doing that. It's that last part that I've been struggling to see. But Muffet also points to a subtle but huge data point in this report. The change in vehicle miles traveled in the U.S. And you want to ask me why I'm optimistic? It's little geeky things like this for almost the full second half of the 20th century and into the 21st century. Every year, year on year, virtually without fail, people were driving more. And... The U.S. government measures that in vehicle miles traveled. And every year, the vehicle miles traveled were going up and up and up, decade in, decade out. That had actually already reached an early peak in 2005. In the wake of the the recession, vehicle miles traveled every year collapsed, which is not unexpected because the whole economy was shutting down. But 2008 is now a long time ago. In the wake of the Great Recession, The U.S. economy entered into the longest period of protracted, sustained economic growth it's it's experienced in a century. And yet, vehicle miles traveled never really returned. If you look at the period since 2008, what we found is that the year-on-year growth in vehicle miles traveled has been about a half a percent a year. And in recent years, it's basically flattened out for the last If you look at the last three years, there's been virtually no growth in how many miles people are traveling every year. But our economy keeps growing. Our population keeps growing. The millennials are the largest generation alive. And yet people are not driving more. And that's important because the oil industry, they don't sell cars, they sell gas. Which doesn't stop the industry from trying, of course. In fact, Muffet connects the dots between the recent rollback of vehicle emissions regulations and this problem. There's a reason that the oil companies and and API have been pushing the rollback of CAFE standards. Because if you can't get people to drive more, you make driving take more fuel. Still, people are driving less. And oil companies are making less money. And ultimately, Muffet thinks that can't last. If you look back 10, 20 years, the the biggest companies in the economy were overwhelmingly oil and gas companies. You know, it was at one point six or seven of the 10 largest companies by market capitalization in the United States were oil and gas companies. If you look at the market now, not one of those 10 is among the biggest companies in the country. Exxon was the last one and it fell out last year. That's 
it for this time. We'll be back soon with more stories coming out of our ongoing reporting on climate and environmental rollbacks and waivers amid the coronavirus pandemic. If you'd like to support that work, please visit drillednews.com support us for options. We'll stick that link in the show notes too. You can sign up for a newsletter, our Patreon, give a one-time donation. Anything you can and want to do is very much appreciated, especially right now when I know everyone is struggling. Big shout out and thank you to our latest Patreon members. They are Zane Selvins, Christopher Round, Marcy Beck, Lewis Morrison, Maya Thompson, Catherine Garcia, Naomi, Aaron Rothfolk, Ian Ware, Zara Ali, Antonia Malchik, Mary Hegler, Kate Aronoff, Kathy Shannon, Nicole Leach, Rachel C., Bradley Newmeyer, Michael Selig, Tree Song, Angela, Brendan DeMille, Jamie Nyram, Daniel Becerra, Michael D'Agostino, Amy, not me, another Amy, Claire Clark, Michelle Frey, and another name. Thank you guys. Your help is really appreciated. It's keeping us going on this policy tracker project. So you're very important to us right now and we appreciate your support. A reminder too that we are working on some upcoming narrative series and both our Patreon members and our Substack subscribers will get early access to those series. We'll also have some members-only bonus content coming at you soon, so look for that. Thanks again, and thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.